Okay, so this is an episode I did with Fred Edish, where we kind of talked about uh, UFC 2, kind of the experience leading into it, how he how it came to pass that he competed in it, and kind of the, the fallout that he got from the MMA community and from the traditional martial arts community uh, due to his performance. And he kind of talked about how that affected him, how he decided to get back into martial arts after you know, uh, dealing with a lot of that, uh, negative, uh, feedback that he got and, uh, just kind of, a, I would say his perseverance to continue, um, in the, uh, MMA community and the martial arts community in general. So, uh, this is Fred Edish. I, I enjoyed the interview. He's a really well-spoken guy and, uh, real down to earth. So, uh, check it out. This is Fred Edish. Okay, so this is uh, Todd Atkins, and I'm here with uh, Fred Edish, uh, UFC 2. But for people, you know, some people listen to this, if they don't know who you are, maybe you could kind of introduce yourself a little. Okay, um, as you said, my name is Fred Edish. I competed in UFC 2 back in uh, March of 1994. I've been a martial artist all my life. Uh, started when I was 12 or 13 years old, and that was way back before the earth cooled in like 1968, 69, something like that. Um, been probably the major part of my life has been devoted to martial arts, mostly traditional martial arts until uh, 1994 when I took part in the UFC. And then after that, uh, I've been training both in the traditional karate and weapons and also in MMA and all the other aspects of MMA, um, like the grappling, jujitsu, wrestling, those kinds of things. Uh, I have a small group in Kansas City, Missouri. I used to have a, a larger group when I first started, but slowly over the years that kind of dwindled down. And I've only got just a very small handful of students now, but I train every day myself. I train those guys three days a week and uh, just continuing to keep on doing the best I can. Uh, even though I'm kind of gray haired and long in the tooth, I'm still trying to improve and get better every day. Uh, to me, that's what the martial arts journey is all about. Yeah, I think a lot of people get into it when they're young, but as you're getting into adulthood, what made you stick with it? Um, well, it's kind of been the glue that's held me together. It's, it's been the one constant in my life. Uh, I've had a lot of things happen to me over the years, ever since I was a kid and um, well into my adult life. I've had uh, a lot of trauma, a lot of things that went wrong, a lot of things that um, I think probably would have put me under if I didn't have an outlet, if I didn't have something that I could pour myself into and martial arts has always been my passion and teaching martial arts to others has been a way for me to give back and to try and help other people hopefully in similar ways that I was helped with it over the years um, and again it's a challenge and I love a challenge uh, I love to keep growing and improving and martial arts has provided that for me too. Uh, I've met some wonderful people over the years uh, and those relationships tend to last a long time because they're very substantive and it's, I can't imagine not being involved in martial arts. I can't imagine a day without training in some way, shape or form. I just can't, it's, it would be like asking me not to breathe. 
But like when you start when you're young, a lot of times parents will put people in, you know, certain martial arts or whatever when they're young. But when you're maybe 17, 18, how were you looking at it differently as, as like I said, as you're approaching adulthood, were you looking at like, okay, what's effective about this or what more can I learn about this? That's what I, I was kind of curious about. Um, well, first of all, I, I kind of joined martial arts behind my father's back. Uh, I didn't think he would go for it. Uh, much to my surprise, when I did tell him what I was doing, he jumped all over it because I was not a good kid. I was getting into a lot of trouble. And I think even though my father was very much against fighting and violence of any, any kind, not that martial arts is violent, but that's the perception of it. Um, I figured that he would go ballistic and try and make me quit. Uh, but he didn't. And he actually supported me because I think somewhere he knew that um, that would at least get me off the street and give me some, some direction. And I started because I was a skinny kid in uh, the shadow of the big city where I was living at the time. Um, was kind of scared, got my ass kicked more than once. And like many people who start martial arts, I wanted to be strong. I wanted to be able to not get my ass kicked and maybe even do a little kicking myself. Um, as I got a little bit older, um, I don't know, I tell people martial arts is like a virus. You either catch it and you have it for life or you fade away uh, when you get a little bit older or after you've been in it a little while. And for me, it always just grew. It never, it never got less. It just always got more. My hunger to learn more, uh, to find what's effective, uh, to, like I said, to help other people, to challenge myself. Uh, those, those are the things that actually drove me. And it always gave me a feeling of belonging somewhere. I belonged in the dojo. I belonged with my teachers. I belonged with my students. And um, for most of my life, I never felt like I belonged anywhere. That was the only place I felt comfortable. It's the only place I felt like I belonged somewhere and that I was doing something that was actually me expressing who I was. Now, were you teaching, by what age were you teaching about? Uh, I started teaching probably long before I should, uh, but it was born of necessity. By that time, I was living up in northern Minnesota. Um, I was... Well, probably 1980, 81, I started assistant teaching for my teacher up there and uh, teaching satellite schools around uh, the city where we lived or the town where we lived. So I was, that would, I would have been 35, 36 years old. Oh, wow. So when you did UFC, how, how old were you? I was, okay, let me back up and do the math again. I'll be 25 or 26. I'm sorry. I was, only yeah, I was, I was thinking, wow, you're already yeah. in your forties, but right. No, I was, I was 38 when I went into the UFC and I was probably 25, 26 when I started teaching uh, either assistant teaching or taking over some satellite schools. So, you know, going from that to fighting in the UFC, especially that, those kind of events when it was just first starting out, it's a huge jump. So I know you mentioned that I didn't mention it to you, but why did they, why did that friend approach you of all people to tell you to do that? Uh, he was a student of mine. Um, the, the, the guy that actually showed me the copy of Black Belt Magazine with the article about USC1 in it. 
Uh, he knew from training with me what my training was like, what my fighting style was like. He knew that I didn't like um, the traditional karate tournaments uh, because of the unrealistic rules, the prohibitions on so many techniques. Uh, most of them were non-contact or limited contact or light contact tournaments. And I would get in trouble for hitting people too hard because they would do crazy things like come rushing in at me. And I'm not going to let anybody rush in at me. I, I, I did what, what I was trained to do. I moved at an angle and I would, I would throw a technique and I would get called for hitting people too hard or people were trying to do spinning techniques on me. I would catch the technique and I would throw them out of what they called the ring area, which was just a mat. I'd get in trouble for that. And uh, <clears throat> it was just something that uh, this guy said, well, he said, this is just kind of tailor made for, for you and, and, and the way that you fight. So you should, you should give it a try. Now having someone say that is one thing, but what did you say? When did you say, all right, no problem. I'd do something like that. Yeah, that is kind of a quantum leap. Um, I, I, I looked at the article and I, you know, it definitely piqued my interest, uh, but I told him, well, you know, I, I'm not too sure about this. Uh, let, me, let, let me think about it. And I tried to research it a little bit more. I never, never saw UFC one um, before I went to UFC two. And I just decided what the hell, give it a try because the more I looked into it, the more it did seem like something that I should be good at. Uh, it took away all the things that I didn't like about, the tournaments uh, that I was saying, uh, it looked to me like something that just allowed you to go out there and fight and test yourself. And like I said, I, I, I was always trying to test myself, trying to grow, trying to improve. And this looked like something new that would give me an outlet for that. So, you know, Black Belt, I know it had a lot of those kind of discussions in it. Who would win this fight, you know, if these people fought or this guy's the baddest guy ever kind of thing. Did you read a lot of those beforehand? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I used to read Black Belt Magazine fairly regularly and, yeah, it's all that, you know, this style's better, that style's better, this guy's the baddest thing on two feet, and, uh, no, this guy's a grandmaster and he can knock you out by looking at you and, you know, all, all this other crazy stuff. And I, that kind of stuff bothered me because traditional karate got a real bad rap because of stuff like that, people making outlandish claims, saying that they could do things that they couldn't do. Uh, and most of those people were fat, overweight, out of shape guys that were sitting around hiding behind these bales of secret techniques and mystery and oh, I can't do this because I'm too dangerous. Uh, and, and it was it was it was it was a bunch of bullshit. And I'm I'm a realistic person, and I don't like that kind of stuff because it blows back on all of us. Uh, traditional karate is nothing but hard work. It's like wrestling or jujitsu or anything else. The, the true traditional karate, not the, 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 the strip mall karate, not saying that they're all bad, but the things that are mostly in the limelight are really far removed from traditional karate, but they're, 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 they're lumped into the same pot. And uh, it just, you know, that, 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 that kind of stuff just always really bothered me. I wanted to show that, hey, you know, there, are, there is some good karate out there. All karate is not, not, not bullshit like, 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 you know, was especially back in those days after the first UFC, you know, everybody, oh, karate's no good, nothing's any good, jiu-jitsu is the only thing that's any good. Now, so you've, you decide to do it. Who did you have to 
talk to in order to get into the event in the first place? Um, I talked to Art Davey. Um, Art's a great guy. Uh, he, he's always treated me really well. He's always been very kind and, and respectful to me over the years. F from the very first contact that I had with him right up through today, I, I still have contact with him occasionally. I met him a couple of years ago again. Uh, he came here to Kansas City well, when, uh, with John McCarthy, who's another great guy who I consider a friend. Um, but I wrote Art a letter because back in those days, the internet was uh, in its infancy. Uh, I certainly didn't have internet. And I, I had written him a letter initially when I decided to go saying, hey, I'd like to have you consider me for this. And he wrote me a letter back saying, hey, thank you, but no thank you. Uh, we've got everybody we need. Uh, you know, maybe we'll you know, let you come to another one. I'll, I'll, I'll keep your, your, your letter on file and I'll, you know, I'll call you. And uh, I let it go at the time. And then uh, I'll never forget it. It was a Saturday. Uh, I always taught Saturday morning classes. After that, we would go out and have lunch together, the students and myself. And then I came back. I was living alone at the time. And the answering machine was blinking. And I hit the button. It was Art Davey. Um, he said, hey, this is Art. Um, I just had a situation come up. Ken Shamrock broke his hand, so he's out. And I'm going to take one of the alternates and put him in Ken Shamrock's place, and I want you to come down as an alternate. So I ended up, uh, finally got it back in touch with him on the, on the Monday following. And um, he, you know, we talked, and he told me what, what the deal was. I asked him as I was would I be able to fight the other alternate? Because I knew in UFC one, from what I had read, the two alternates fought like a preliminary and then the other fights took place. He said, no, he said, uh, because this is a 16 man tournament. He said, we won't have time for that. Um, I just need you to come here in case somebody gets hurt before the fight or gets sick or for some reason doesn't show up by fight night. He said, then you'll take their place. He said, uh, if that doesn't happen, if everybody's there, everybody's healthy, he said, you won't get to fight, but I, I promise you I'll bring you back for another one. So now you know you're going to be an alternate. And even then, it was still, you know, for people that haven't seen it, if someone's living under a rock listening to this, you know, it was still very much style versus style. So now you know you're going to do it. Were you just preparing by doing, you know, kind of the same stuff you've been doing before or had you been exposed to UFC one at that time? Were you kind of thinking about maybe other things? Uh, no, I wasn't thinking about anything else. Um, it was it was less than two weeks before the event when we uh, about a week and a half before the event. It was so close to the event that he had to FedEx me the tickets overnight to make sure that I got them in time. Um, all I did was continue to, to keep training the way I was training. I didn't have time to go out and find anybody else and. At the time, there really was, especially where I lived, up in the frozen tundra of northern Minnesota, there really was, you know, I could have maybe found some wrestlers, um, but there really was nothing else at the time. And so you get there, I mean, what was the, you know, being at the event itself, you know, what was that like to be in that atmosphere? Because it, I mean, I couldn't believe I was seeing it, even though I had always wanted to see it. I had always wanted to see, because I had read the Black Belt magazine just like you. You know, I had watched a lot of movies over the years. It's something I very much wanted to see, but I was pretty shocked that I was seeing it. What did you think, like, being at that at the event, you know, prior to? 
Well, it was, uh, it was, it was very unusual, very different, like nothing I'd ever been through before. Um, I'd never been exposed on a large scale to, you know, cameras, news, press, um, you know, the, the, all of the, 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 the trappings that go on around a, in an event like that. Um, it was kind of nerve wracking, but at the same time, um, uh, I didn't know that I was going to even fight. And then Thursday night, we had the, the, the press party and Art Davey came up to me and he said, well, the last guy just showed up. Everybody's healthy. Everybody's here. You're definitely not going to fight. Uh, thanks for coming. And uh, I'll, I'll get you in on another one. And ironically, the last guy to show up was Johnny Rhodes. And Johnny Rhodes was the guy that was tabbed to take uh, Ken Shamrock's place. And so Johnny Rhodes and I were kind of intricately intertwined because eventually, obviously, he's the guy that, that gave me the beating that night, uh, UFC 2. But leading up to it, um, it was pretty chaotic, especially right before the event in the evening. Uh, the, the event had gotten pulled from McNichols Arena and got put into a place called the Mammoth Event Center, which was just a real pit. And it was, in, it was definitely, it was on skid row, and I'm not exaggerating. We were stepping over drunks and addicts, literally passed out on the sidewalk out in front of the event. There was not enough changing areas and warm-up areas in the, in, in the Mammoth Event Center for the fighters so that they, they art had rented uh, a hotel across the way. And that place was, man, that was awful. Some of the rooms didn't even have doors on it. The place stunk of urine. There were drug deals going on as we walked around in there. It was just completely, it was complete chaos. But by that time I thought, well, I'm just here. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be fighting, I'm not going to be doing anything. So, you know, I'll just walk around and, you know, when the fights start, I'll get to watch the fights and, you know, be, you know let, let, let things happen as they will. And maybe I'll get to come back to another one. And who did they tell you you were replacing when you actually had to compete? I was replacing uh, Frank Honaker from Holland. He'd come over with uh, Gerard Gordeaux as his corner man. Gordeaux obviously was the one who fought Hoist in the finals in UFC 1. And Hamaker was a, a fairly good-sized guy uh, who was uh, a grappler, I guess. And they said he hurt his hand. He beat Thaddeus Luster in his first fight. And uh, when actually Horian is the one who grabbed a hold of me, literally, as I was uh, out. Because by that time, I was helping Art to run the show. Uh, Art grabbed a hold of me and said, hey, he says, I need you to help me get the fighters up here so I can keep things moving for the pay-per-view. You know who the fighters are. You can find them for me. You can bring them up. When I tell you to go get this person, you bring them up, then you go back and get the next one. And so I just brought up um, Minoki Ichihara, who fought Hoist in the first round. And I was walking downstairs to try and find, I can't remember who, but the next guy. And Hori and Gracie's walking up the stairs and he grabs me by the arm and he goes, are you ready to fight? And I looked at him and I went, what? He goes, I need you to fight. Hamaker hurt his hand. He cannot fight. I need you to fight. And I went, oh, right now? He goes, yes. And I said, okay. And I went and found my guys. Uh, they got my gear. And uh, we tried to find a place to warm up. 
and which was hard to do. But um, that that's how crazy things were spinning out of control and how fast my situation changed there just right on the spot. So you really hadn't had a chance to watch some of these other fights? No, I was, no, I, I didn't. I was, I was too busy, you know, running back and forth. I caught glimpses of it, but I, I, I had never seen even one complete match. I saw little bits and pieces as I was going back and forth. But no, I hadn't, I hadn't even watched the fight yet. And I remember you saying kind of, you know, actually competing in it, you kind of had, had checked out or that it was almost <laughs> yeah. like a dream, so to speak. But maybe looking back, not on your fight, but in the event in general, you know, you've already competed, you saw the event, and, you know, especially a lot of people in the early days, what was your takeaway, maybe not from your fight, but just the overall experience, seeing some of these other fights and what you thought at that point? Uh, well, I was impressed with Hoist uh, because Hoist did what he did. Uh, I, my, I saw that there was a lot more to learn uh, to be effective in a fight uh, with the limited rules. Uh, of course, I had in my head, I had my own game plan on, on what I would have liked to have done. Uh, obviously, I didn't do it. But um, it seemed to me that um, it was a lot of people that were, we, we all had our own style, but it was the person who could do more that would probably be the person who would end up rising above and, and, and becoming successful because, you know, I felt that if somebody could have kept Hoist from taking them down, that they could have beaten Hoist. And I'm not saying that to say anything negative about Hoist, quite the opposite. I, I respect him immensely. I've met him. He's a great guy. Um, nothing but respect for him. But I thought if, you know, for example, if, if I fought him, and that's who I wanted to fight. You know, I read about Hoist. He won the first one. I wanted to fight Hoist because he was he was the best. And like I said, I wanted a challenge. And I felt like if I could, you know, keep the fight standing, I hit pretty hard. I, I figured, especially bare knuckle, that's that's what I trained. I tra traditional martial arts, we train bare knuckle. We train our hands for conditioning uh, and our legs and everything else. And I thought, well, I, you know, if I could keep fighting and hit him, I'll bet I could beat him. And my takeaway from it was, well, yeah, I still think if you could have kept him on his feet, he, he, he could have been beatable, but nobody was able to keep him from getting a hold of him. And so there, you know, the takeaway from that is, well, you, you have to learn how to not get taken down. And if you get taken down, you, you, you need to know what you're doing down there. And not many people did. But I mean, even as that event happened, even further into the UFC's development, there, a lot of people were still in the dark about what worked. So were you talking to other fighters? Were they talking to you? Or did you just kind of go back to Minnesota and maybe think about some of the experience you had in that event? You know, what were you looking at as time went on? Well, initially, I just went home up to northern Minnesota and, and, and went back to doing what I did. I was embarrassed. I felt awful about the way things went. I felt like I let people down. I felt like I let myself down. I felt like I didn't represent myself in, in a way that uh, was anything I could be proud of. And uh, it really, it, 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 it affected me greatly. Uh, but I thought about what happened, what, had, what I had to do to make myself better 
And as time went on, uh, as a teacher, I decided that if I'm teaching people martial arts and I'm telling them that if it's a fighting art that I'm teaching them, I had to be better at addressing fighting in totality. And that meant fighting on the ground. That meant uh, submissions. <clears throat> we knew a lot about joint locks, but mostly we did them on our feet. We didn't do them like the jujitsu people did. So I started you know, talking with other people, uh, looking at what was going on, looking at the way other people trained, training with other people and, and trying to shore up the areas that I felt I needed the most work so that not only could I be better personally, but I could be a better teacher and I could give people a more complete product. I, I didn't want to be that person that made tons of excuses about why I lost <clears throat> and, and hide behind that and, you know, and, and put my head in the sand because that's just not who I am as a person. I didn't do well. Uh, I, I, I had weaknesses. Um, most, of, most of what happened to me was because I checked out mentally, but I knew that you know, after the event that had I went to the ground with voice, voice would have, would have submitted me probably pretty easily. And I didn't like that feeling. I, well, I, I've got to learn how to be better so that I can be better I can teach my students and I could look them in the eye and say, yes, I'm teaching you a good martial art that will teach you how to fight and not pretend that ground fighting didn't exist or wrestling didn't exist or jujitsu didn't exist and that those things weren't all viable and dangerous and things that needed to be examined. So you start incorporating more grappling into your training pretty quickly? Oh, yes. Yeah. As soon as, as, soon as I could. Yeah, there was... There wasn't, excuse me, back in those days, there, there weren't a lot of jujitsu schools around, especially, again, up where I was from. Uh, it, was, it was a few years before I was able to start cross-training with some people who were able to help me um, in, in those areas. But uh, I, tried to, I tried to look, you know, watch things, you know, on video. And I'm not the smartest guy in town, but I'm not the village idiot either. I can look at something and, and, and see the way it works. Uh, I understand how the human body works, and and so I I immediately almost immediately started looking at things on video, and then when I was able to start finding people who were actually doing these things and start training with them a little bit and, and incorporating that into my own personal way of fighting. What were some of the videos you were watching? Oh man, I don't even remember anymore. Uh, a lot of the old events, because um, not long after I competed, some other events started. I think the WEC came up, and there were other little fields. Yeah, um, oh, I can't remember. Maurice Smith fought. events, yeah. Yeah, yes. And, and so I started watching those events, watching what people were doing, uh, watching people like Henzo Gracie as well as Hoist, um, pe people who who were doing well and people who weren't doing well and uh, just, just, just trying to take mental notes and, and, and see what I could do to incorporate whatever I was seeing, uh, which is not a good way to learn, but if you have nothing else, it, it beats nothing. But I mean, a lot of guys were learning that way. That's why I asked because, you know, I don't know how active you were in some of the internet type stuff but, or tape trading or whatever, but a lot of people learn by watching Mario Sperry's early videos or, oh, yeah. you yeah. know, some of Boss Rutten's early tapes. Yeah. So were you yeah. utilizing any of those? 
Um, I saw a few of those. I utilized them to a degree, um, not a whole lot, but somewhat. Boss, Boss Rutten is, is somebody I watched quite a bit, um, maybe more than anybody else. Now, after you competed, did Art Davey talk to you about anything or maybe fighting again, or did you think about fighting again? Oh, yeah, I thought about it, but I, I wrote Art a letter and asked him to, you know, reminding him that he said that he would bring me back for another one. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't get an answer from Art on that. Uh, I, I don't know why. Maybe he just felt, and my, my personal opinion was the UFC just exploded. Uh, in the be, excuse me, in the beginning, they were seeking out fighters to fight. It wasn't very long before fighters were clamoring to get in there. So I don't think they needed me anymore. They, they didn't need me. They had a, a large pool of people to choose from that I don't think that they had in the first place and probably because I did so poorly maybe he didn't think that it was a good idea to bring me back I don't know but uh, no hard feelings uh, like I said I'm on great great terms with art so you know as you're continuing to teach and learn and get better are you paying attention to these other UFC events and stuff Oh yeah, yeah. I watched them, uh, especially back uh, in, in not long after UFC two. There weren't that many events. Uh, there was, you know, several months in between an event, and it was and it was always uh, a big deal when oh, there's going to be a UFC. So we'd all get together and and and, and buy the pay per view and meet someplace, and we'd all watch it. And uh, in the beginning, I, I I never missed an event. I would always I would always go watch it you know, whatever I could. And so who were some of the competitors you remember from back then that you maybe caught your eye or that you paid more attention to perhaps? Oh, wow. A bunch of them. Marco Huas impressed me a lot. Uh, Pat Militich and all of his guys. Uh, I watched them. Uh, Maurice Smith was a guy. Mark Coleman, Don Fry. Uh, a guy that a lot of people, a lot of people don't give him enough credit, but Jeremy Horn, I th he's one of Pat's guys, but um, he was back in the day. Um, but Jeremy was a guy that was so good everywhere, and you'd never tell it by looking at him. But uh, was a very successful fighter. Um, there were there were just so many of them back then that uh, I was impressed by. But those are the ones that immediately come to my mind. And as you're continuing to train, how much of like what you're teaching, how much of it was grappling versus what you had learned before then? Well, the way I approached it was I kept teaching the traditional karate the way it was taught to me. And separately, I trained in more of the mixed martial arts and the grappling. And I always offered the opportunity to my students to do both but I didn't mix them together per se. Uh, only, only where the, where the overlap didn't, only where the overlap made sense. Okay. Traditional martial arts, traditional karate was never meant to be competitive or sporting, especially as, as, as the UFC grew and, and they started to get more and more rules. Um, so I, 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 I didn't want to mishmash everything together and not have it a, a separation of the two but i also wanted to be able to mesh them together 
where they fit and give people the opportunity to do one, to do the other, or do both. And then they could they could mesh their own particular, if they wanted to fight, they could mesh their own particular fighting style out of what I gave them. Now, did you ever consider fighting at some of these other, other events that are popping up over time? Oh yeah, I tried a couple of times to get into events. Um, never worked out. Uh, the, there's a, a Clyde Gentry III, uh, he's, he's a, an author. Uh, he wrote a book um, and was very kind to me in the book, interviewed me for the book. And I made him jump through some hoops before I, I agreed to it because I had been misquoted and completely, stories about me completely fabricated about things that I said. And these were people I'd never met. And so I was real leery about so-called journalists uh, in, in the mixed martial arts. But uh, he proved to be a solid guy. And uh, he had a, a magazine for a while called Ultimate Athlete that he was a big part of. And they had fight shows. And I had agreed to go fight for, for them, for Ultimate Athlete. And that was the show out in California where they had a big biker riot in the, in the crowd. And things just went really off the rails. And I ended up not going to that. Uh, there were some personal things that came up that kept me away from that. Um, and it, it seemed like and, until I finally fought again in 2009, something kept getting in the way. But uh, finally in 2009, I got back in to a, to a small show. And I know I, you brought this up, but, you know, the reaction after you competed, how much did that affect you? Did you pay a lot of attention to that? That was that was worse than the, by far than the beating I took at the hands of Johnny Rhodes in the cage. Um, like I said, the internet was a really new thing. I didn't have it, so I was unaware of a lot of it. But I was getting, I was getting, I would get phone calls, you know, harassing phone calls, people, you know, making fun of me, you know, messages on my answering machine. I'd even get letters in the mail. Um, Around 1997 was the first time I got internet. Uh, I was working for a school district and they gave me an internet account, an email account. And um, so I, I started being able to see a little bit some of the chat rooms and some of the things that, and I, I, it, was, it was awful. I mean, it, it was insulting. There was a, a website that most people know about it, you know, the, the, the fetal fighting website that was extremely mocking of me to say the least uh, people pretending to be me and you know making you know just making fun of me to no end and I'm a proud person uh, I'm not proud in the fact that I'm like I've got a big ego quite the opposite but I take pride in myself as a man I take pride in myself as always doing the best that I can and and taking responsibility for myself and being a hard worker and to have people say the personally hurtful things that they did. And I, th I thought, well, this will go away. And it lasted for years. It, it, was, it was about 12 years before things finally turned and people all of a sudden started to be very kind and respectful towards me. And most of this other stuff went away. But uh, even then, for many years, there were still every once in a while I would, I would get an email or I would, somebody would send me something from a chat room, um, the underground forum, uh, sure dogs forum. Those places were, were pure hell for me back in the day. 
But I mean, aside from, you know, the form, was it something that it really messed with you as far as mentally or oh, yeah. something that yeah. you were able to blow off over time? Over a lot of time, I, I learned how to manage it and to not let it get me down. Um, but for many years, it was, it, it definitely got to me. Uh, like I said, from the outset, I've had a life that has had a lot of bad things happen, a lot of negative things, a lot of things that probably would maybe put some other people under that I was fighting against. And it would seem frequently to me that when some of these other things were getting really bad and I was already feeling very down and depressed, there would be a big influx of that negativity from other people making fun of me. And so it was a, it was a cumulative effect. It would, it would push me down and it would make me feel just awful. And, and you know, it, it, it exacerbated the depression. Uh, it made me very angry, bitter, uh, even more depressed than I was. And, and it, it was awful. I mean, I, hell, I had to bury my son in 1996 and man, this stuff was swirling around all of, you know, and never went away. And uh, that was, that was, that was an awful period in my life. And a lot of, a lot of the, 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 the reason why it was so awful was on top of the trauma of losing a child and, and other things that were going on at the time and things from the past, this, 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 this other negativity just piled on and piled on. It was like this big, heavy cloud that kept pushing me down and it was hard to fight through it. It was, it was hard to overcome it and to, and to not give into it. Yeah. I had heard you mention your son before in some interviews. Um, was it that he, he wasn't well or what, what had happened? Uh, he was, um, it was a, it was a full term pregnancy. His mother, uh, we've since parted ways many years ago, but, uh, she did nothing wrong. She was very healthy. She took care of herself. She took care of the baby. Everything was good. The baby was doing fine. She went to all the medical checkups. She didn't smoke. She didn't drink. She exercised. Now the baby, he was kicking in there. And um, I remember she would say, hey, come, come calm your son down because he's, he's got, I could watch from across the room how her belly was rippling. And I put my hands on there and I talked to him. And immediately he would settle down and everything was good right up to we went in when she went into labor and it was a long labor. Um, then things started to go bad. The, the, the baby's heart, heart rate, his name is Abraham, was Abraham. Um, his, his heart rate would go way, would, would go way down and the doctor would stop everything and let his mother relax and let everything come back to normal and then he would try again to, to get her to deliver um, and it wasn't working. And then at some point, I don't know how low the baby's heart rate went, but the doctor very calmly just looked at his staff and said, shotgun. And it, things were flying around and they got her down to the OR and I had told her that I wouldn't leave her, but we got to the door of the OR and I had to make a decision because they told me, no, you can't go any further. And 
nobody could have stopped me. But had I pushed through, that would have made everything worse. It would have cost more time. And so I, I, I stopped. They went in, they got her, they got her intubated and opened up really quickly and they got Abraham out, but he didn't make it. You know, I'm really sorry to hear about that. You know, like I lost my father a couple of years ago. And when I heard you talking about these different things that were going on around you at the time, like I really struggled, you know, dealing with the loss of my father because it wasn't something we were expecting. You know, it kind of happened real suddenly. And, uh, the police had kind of woke me up that night, you know, in the middle of the night to tell me he had passed away, you know, cause I wasn't answering my phone. Cause wow. this had happened around midnight, you know, after work, normally I didn't have the ringer on, but yeah. So I was wondering, how did you, man, how did you choose to get through these things? Cause it's something that was difficult for me, especially really like the first year. I'm convinced that a few things saved me. Uh, first of all, all of the, 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 the pain and the trauma I had in my life leading up to that point. And like you, I lost my father very quickly, very unexpectedly. He was a young man. He was 52 years old. He shouldn't have died, but he did. Um, I'd been an abused child. Um, I had a stepfather that beat my ass and sexually abused me. And all of those things, when you survive that, it's, it's kind of like training. Um, if, 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 you, if you can survive that and continue on, then that makes you tougher. And I think the, the and, and, and my heart, I know for a fact that training and teaching martial arts, that's where I put my passion. And I did that even more so after I lost Abraham. I put more of myself into that because that's what made me feel good that was that was my hiding place that was where i could go and i could truly be myself and i could be around other people and i could give to other people and i could get a return from other people in the fact that they made me feel good too and, and to have some place to put all my passion, that was, that was huge for me. If I didn't have that, I don't know what I would have done. Um, my ex-wife went to um, therapy, uh, group therapy for other people who had lost babies the way that we did. But that wasn't for me. I couldn't do that because I'm too closed of a person. Even though these other people might have shared a similar experience, I didn't know them. and I can't open my soul and my innermost feelings to people unless I develop a trust with them. So that wasn't for me that, that seemed to work for her and I supported her in that. But for me, I couldn't do that. So that, that, that training, that martial arts, being in the dojo, you know, training anywhere else I could train that, that was, that was my therapy. That was my hiding place. That was my oasis and amongst all the other stuff that was going on around me. And why do you think people's uh, reaction to you started to change? Uh, you know, I've never understood any of that. Uh, a lot of people have tried to tell me their, their different ideas on it. I don't, I never knew why 
I got the intensity of negative reaction from people in the first place. I never understood why it lasted as long as it did. It was a mystery to me. Um, I expected to get some fallout. I mean, I'm not an idiot. Like I said, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm realistic. When, when I put myself out there in a public event like that, if I was willing, had I been successful, I would have been willing, very willing to take the accolades. But the flip side of that is if you, if you don't do well, if you fail, you have to be willing to take the criticism. And I was okay with that. Because trust me, there is nobody on God's green earth that was more critical of my performance than myself. It would be impossible. Nobody could, nobody could have been harder on me than I was on myself already. But the intensity of it, the, 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 the personal nature of it, I never understood that. And the, 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 the one thing that happened that really was uh, just a complete 180 was uh, on the underground forum, uh, mixedmartialarts.com. Um, there was a post, as there had been many of, about me, and it wasn't very nice. And I jumped on there. This was the first time I, 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 jumped, I jumped on there and I made a response. And, and Kirk Jenis sent me an email and said, hey, is this really you? I need to know. And I, I convinced him that, yeah, it really was me. I'm not some imposter trying to pile on. And people started asking me questions and I answered them straight up. And I think that all of a sudden at that point, tons of people started to, uh, there, there was back in those days, uh, the underground was huge. It was the place to be. Um, there was really nothing else like it around. Sure dog was there, but this was even bigger. And, these people started to be very supportive and understanding and respectful and kind. And I, maybe just because I put myself back out there, something else that I did, uh, back in the, uh, <clears throat> early to very early two thousands, <clears throat> I started going to MMA shows in, um, in the Minneapolis area. <clears throat> and I figured, well, I'm just going to go to start going to some of these shows. And if people want to talk that shit to me that they talk to me online and you know, on phone calls or anonymously like they were doing, all right, come up and say it to my face. I can take it. You know, let, you know, let's have a conversation because, you know, when I would get some of these phone calls and, and, and uh, even on the internet, when I finally got internet, people were saying, yeah, you suck. I could kick your ass. I'd give them my ad and say, come on up, kick my ass. Go for it. Find out how bad I am. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. One way to find out. Come, come see me. Here's my address. Here's when I'm here. And I lived in the dojo at that time, so they could have come anytime and I would have been there. Nobody ever came. I went down to these shows and I went, okay. Because people knew I was there. Uh, the promoters would announce that I was in the, in, in the crowd several times. And I thought, okay, here we go. Where are you? And the response was always positive. I did not, I did not get one person come up to me and say anything negative or derogatory ever in any show. The, the, the closest thing that any that happened that would have, could have been perceived as that was I went to UFC 45. It was their 10th anniversary show. And, uh, I, 
had talked to Dana White and said, hey, I'd like to come out and, and, and see the show. And he said, oh, that'd be great. And he said, yeah, he said, I'll, I'll, I'll get you in and we'll have you in the autograph lineup. And I went, God, that wasn't what I intended. I just wanted to be there, you know, and see, see, see the event 10 years later, a decade after its inception, and to see how it, how it had come to be. But uh, he included me in all of that. And I was there with people like Pat Militich, Mark Coleman, Don Fry, Marco Huas, tons of people that were there, um, you know, big guys, big names. And we were at this long table and people would come through to get autographs. And most people didn't even know who I was. And the few people that did were, were mostly very kind of, one guy comes up to me and this, it wasn't derogatory, but he thought it was. He called me because he goes, well, he says, you know, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but you sure got your ass kicked in UFC too. And I laughed and I said, yeah, I said, that's exactly how I remember it. I sure did get my ass kicked. And he goes, well, I hope it doesn't, you know, I hope you don't get mad. I said, I'm not mad. Of course I got my ass kicked. I mean, that's, that's the reality of the situation. But he was, he was very respectful about it. But nobody ever came up to me and challenged me or, or, or talked any shit or anything in any place I ever went. I think that there's more of appreciation now for the people that fought in those events, especially because the risk you guys were taking at that time, I think is kind of similar to what maybe guys that are fighting in bare knuckle, you know, the bare knuckle fighting. Yeah. I think people that fight in MMA look at those guys and they're like, you know, holy shit, you know, like these guys are, these guys are seriously doing something that's pretty scary. And I think, Back then, for the guys that competed in the early UFCs where there was, you know, just extremely minimal rules and, you know, health protections. I think over the years, as this sport has gone on, I think more people look at people like you and the other people that are doing that and are like, man, you know, this was pretty crazy, you know. I think that's kind of, I think people have more appreciation for the guys that were doing that now than they did at the time. Because even bare knuckle, if you look at the reaction to bare knuckle, a lot of it is similar. Oh, yeah. to what you're seeing early of season it's coming from guys a lot of them are professional fighters mma fighters that are saying this is barbaric this is not good this you know yeah. they're having the exact same reaction that a lot of the traditionals had to the early of seas so yeah you know, we, we, we we were bare knuckle boxing but we didn't just box i mean we we we, we had you know it was the wild west for us, just like it is for them now. Um, so yeah, that, that, that could be it. Most people have, if you say my name, most, most fans, it doesn't ring any bells. Nobody knows the hardcore fans remember and the hardcore fans know about everything that we did and that we went through. But most of today's fans have no idea. I can go to a show now here in Kansas city area or anywhere and nobody raises an eyebrow. Back in the day when I would go to shows, man, I mean, people, people would come up to me and, and, and shake my hand and talk to me and a promoter knew I was coming. He'd, may, he'd sit me down in the front row and sometimes they'd have me walk up into the cage or the ring. Uh, it was, you know, it, it, it was different. Now, no, nobody, nobody knows. Yeah, but you don't have the same hairstyle and the mustache. Maybe it's hard, <laughs> hard to recognize you. I don't have the hair. That's right. Yeah. 
it'd be harder for them to maybe tell who you were at this time, perhaps. Yeah, true. Well, the mullet would be gray now, so. <laughs> does it does it feel strange to you that people want to talk to you as much now as, or maybe even more now than they did at that time? Yes, very much so. Um, I've done several podcasts and interviews. Um, I get still occasionally an email. Uh, someone will say, hey, you know, I, 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 I saw your story. Uh, Bobby Razak made a short little uh, video clip of me, and that got an awful lot of response. And I, you know, and I get responses still from that, <clears throat> still from other podcasts that I've done. Uh, or people have read articles uh, that I've been featured in, and they'll say, hey, you know, your, your story motivated me, it inspired me, it helped me. And yeah, that, you know, the fact that, you know, people like yourself want to talk to me, uh, the other people that have done the podcasts, um, it, it's uh, my, my usual response is, well, if you think that it's something that your audience would be interested in, fine but I don't know if they will be. Um, but apparently there is interest and, and, and that touches me. It touches me a lot. And when I get those um, emails or messages through Facebook or what have you, where people said, hey, you know, I was in a real down spot in my life and I, I watched your interview or I read your story and you helped me get through it. That touches me. That, that means a lot. The interview you did with Bobby, was that the first time you had talked about your experience? <laughs> the interview with Bobby was, it was interesting. Bobby's an interesting guy. He's a great guy. Um, I went down there, uh, flew, flew out to Los Angeles on my own dime because Bobby had contacted me and said, hey, he says, I'm doing um, a story on the history of MMA and I want you to be a part of it. He said, it'll just be a real short clip um, got all these other guys coming in and, you know, we're just going to roll with it. And I'll just ask you a few questions. And, um, I went down, there was that John McCarthy's gym when he was, I think it was Santa Monica it was someplace out there. He had a real beautiful big gym <clears throat> and that's where the interview was set up or the, 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 the story was set up. And I sat down and I thought I was going to get just a few generic questions and, all of a sudden he started asking me all this personal stuff. And so I answered him and I, you know, cause I didn't know what else to do. Um, for some reason I, I didn't feel threatened by it. And so we, you know, we proceeded with the interview just like it was meant to be that way, but it wasn't. But when it was all done, I said, wow. I said, where did all that come from? I said, I wasn't expecting that. He goes, well, he said, I wasn't either. He said, I felt something from you. And I just, I just, I just ran with it. He said, I hope you don't mind. I said, well, if I minded, I, I would have cut it short. I wouldn't have finished the interview. And so it was completely impromptu. It was completely off the cuff. Nothing was talked about beforehand. Nothing was rehearsed. It was just Bobby feeling something and asking me a bunch of questions and me giving my honest answers. Yeah, the reason I ask is because I do know some guys like, you know, Mike Burnett lives in my hometown, for example, and he kind of never wants to talk about anything. Oh, okay. No, it's almost like the, it, he just doesn't want to talk about it at all. You know, it's almost like, I don't know if it's just something he doesn't like or whatever. And I was just wondering, because you're, from your experience, were, 
if that was the first one, were you thinking like, I don't want to talk to this guy? Because some guys don't want to. Maybe they had an experience or whatever happened left a sour taste in their mouth as far as fighting goes. And I was just wondering if you felt like, man, I don't know if I want to go talk to this guy or. There, there's, there was a, a, a lot of time bef before that and not too long after my fight that I didn't want to talk to anybody. Um, the, the first people that got me out of my shell were, like I said, Clyde Gentry III and Loretta Hunt and her brother Jim Genia. Uh, they used to, they were working for Full Contact Fighter Magazine, uh, Jim and Loretta, and they came out to a small town Minnesota fight. And uh, I met them there, I think, more than once in Minnesota. And they were extremely kind to me. Jim wrote a very nice article about me <clears throat> in Full Contact Fighter. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, I'm a person, I go on, on what I feel from a person. It, 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 if I feel some negativity or if I feel something I'm not comfortable with, I clam up. I won't say anything. But if I feel something good coming from them, then I tend to, to open up more. And they, they were so good to me. And uh, so I, they started getting me to come out of my shell just by being good people. And from then on, I, you know, if, if, if somebody asks me about it, I'll, I'll, I'll tell them, like I said, if I have a good feeling for them, but I don't go around initiating those kind of conversations. I don't go out and say, hey, I'm Fred Edge. I fought in UFC too. Want to hear my story? You know, that, that's not me. But uh, if somebody asks me and has a sincere interest, then yeah, I'll talk about it. Yeah, I think, you know, like I said before, I think the guys like you and others that competed because it was so new and because it was so different, because no one had done it before, I think there's a lot more angles to your story than maybe guys that are doing it now because it's not something new. It's not something unknown. It's more regulated. It's, it's not the same experience. You know, maybe the guys in bare knuckle could say, have a similar experience because, I mean, I've talked to Chris Lieben who fought in bare knuckle and those guys are still having the same conversations that right. early UFC guys are like, how are you training for this? You know, how are you doing this? You know, they're all kind of learning how to prepare for bare knuckle, mm -hmm. you know, in a different way. You know, how's it, how's it to throw a punch with no glove on versus an eight ounce glove versus a, you know, mm -hmm. so they're having those same kind of almost where there's the same camaraderie that maybe there was with the early fighters. Cause they're all doing something that's really risky. Mm -hmm. that was completely unknown. And I think, the bare knuckle guys are having some of those same conversations from what I've heard in the dressing rooms and stuff a lot. The camaraderie is similar because they don't, they don't, it's a little dangerous, you know, compared to MMA. It's, it's not as necessarily as safe, you know, or it doesn't look that way. Yeah. It's, it's, it's more uncharted waters. Um, it, it, you know, it's, it's not new because that's the way boxing was back way back when, uh, but for us nowadays, it's new. It's just like uh, the, the UFC was new to us, but, you know, the Greek pancreation, you know, back, you know, centuries ago was, was a no-holds-barred wrestling, striking, choking, 
joint twisting art like like what we have so whenever something is new to the people watching it then uh yeah you, you have those conversations so i can imagine the bare knuckle guys are are going through similar things to what we went through um but we we went through it not too long ago so maybe that helped pave the way so that bare knuckle boxing can have what they have today because maybe because of the early days of what was called nhb at the time maybe that set the table so that now they can have the bare knuckle boxing where had we not been through what we went through and eventually it got accepted you know if we hadn't done that maybe maybe the public wouldn't be able to to to, to sanction bare knuckle boxing i don't know i'm just just well, you're kind of in that area because the guys behind it, you know, like Sean Wheelock's in Kansas City. Right. Yeah. And I know that he was, you know, trying to work there to, you know, I think he had got some sort of sanctioning for bare knuckle that he was focusing on. As someone who competed in those early events, which were mostly bare knuckle events, some people wore gloves, but most of them didn't. What do you think of something like bare knuckle seeing it? I like it. Um, I haven't had an opportunity to watch very much of it, but I think it's great. Uh, I think it's more, it's more natural. It, it's, it's a more pure form of fighting um, than fighting with, especially with boxing gloves on. Uh, your technique has to be, I think, better. It's harder, it's harder to, 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 to block a small fist than it is to block a fist that's got that big casing of a glove around it. Um, and you damn sure better hit correctly or you're going to break your hand. So that teaches you how to punch correctly. Um, you, you, you better know how to move your head into slip or you're, you're, you're going to get cut up pretty good because uh, the, the bare knuckle is going to slice you up. I think it's Jason Knight and, and Artem Loboff had a, a real bloody battle. I saw pictures of them after. They were, they were both all cut up. And that's what happens with an unprotected fist when it meets flesh. I mean, you know, the things, things get cut and, you know, bruises happen and, but I think it's a good thing. Um, I wish them all the success in the world. I, I, I hope it continues on. Well, I mean, did you ever watch a lot of boxing versus something like, cause I feel like maybe boxing is, it's not giving people what it used to. Right. I don't think bare knuckle, should try to compete with UFC, but maybe boxing might be better, you know, because they could give fans, at least with the athletes they have, the fights they want to see these athletes fight each other. They could do that, but also, you know, maybe some of the excitement that the fans in boxing aren't getting lately, or maybe right. not enough. Right. I used to be a huge boxing fan before MMA hit. I could tell you every champion and every weight class in, in different organizations. Of course, back in those days, there weren't quite as many different organizations as the alphabet soup of different boxing organizations that are out there now. But uh, <clears throat> I, I, I watched Ali, Frazier, Foreman, um, Ernie Shavers, uh, Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran in his prime, Thomas Hearns, Marvin Hagler, uh, Wilfredo Benitez. I mean, there was those guys, I loved watching them. At, at the time, 
that was to me that was that was the greatest um mm -hmm. I, I enjoyed it a lot but after mma came i slowly lost more and more interest in that because i it, to me it seemed incomplete anymore it, it, it seemed like it was missing something mm -hmm. uh, now every once in a while i'll watch something because i like to watch anything done well i i respect and i appreciate and um like watching Lomachenko and the way he moves and his, his slickness and his elusiveness and his, you know, and being able to slip and counter and cut all those angles. I, I love watching something like that. I mean, you know, uh, watching Tyson Fury, a, a guy that uh, doesn't look like he should be able to beat anybody up. Um, he's big, but I mean, he doesn't look like that fearsome athlete. Um, but he's, he's a brilliant strategist. He's, he's great at boxing. Uh, I, I, I love and reading a little bit about his story and all the, you know, he, you know he, he struggled against a lot of things and then he came back from those things and became, you know, the best heavyweight in the world. And um, those kind of things inspire me and I enjoy watching them. But I don't get excited about boxing like I used to. I used to. Like, like the, the Hagler-Leonard fight, man, I was so pumped for that. Watching Tommy Hearns fight, I was a big fan of Tommy Hearns. Watching him, him and that one round that him and Hagler had, that's probably one of the most action-packed boxing fights ever. I mean, that's what a classic. What, what a couple of warriors that, that went out there and just laid it online. Those things used to excite me a lot. Now, I don't get as excited, you know. I, you know Manny Pacquiao is, is a guy that I love to watch too. Um, but those guys nowadays are few and far between. And like I said, I, I enjoy more the totality of uh, the MMA than just strictly the boxing. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Lomachenko and Lopez because that, that's kind of my Boxing, when they do it right, I think they can get a lot of people interested. But they oh. very rarely do it. Right. You and know, and I think a lot of boxing fans are frustrated, and that's where Bare Knuckle could try to move in. Right. Well, I, I agree. I, th I think boxing fans have become very frustrated. They don't get the product anymore that they used to get. Um, yeah, I, I think Bare Knuckle can make some inroads in that. And, and like I said, I wish them the best. Did, did you watch Lomachenko and Lopez fight? I watched, uh, I, I, I watched some of it. I watched like the first six rounds and then I had to get up and do something. And for some reason, I never sat down and watched the rest of it. What did you think of what you saw? I mean, it was a important, a big fight. So, what did you think of it? Uh, it looked to me like Loma was was holding back um, from the part of the fight that I saw, and um, I think he gave away too many rounds. I don't know exactly why. I don't know what might have been if 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 that's just was his strategy was to was to lay back and then come on late. And it sounds from what I read that that he did come on late, but you can't you can't give away too much because the other guy's got a plan too, and you might not be able to execute the way you want to. And, uh, you know, giving away, you know, four or six rounds while you're trying to wait for the guy to either wear out a little bit or to figure him out or to get his timing. Uh, that's, you're, you're taking a chance. So I don't know. I, I have to go back and watch the rest of that fight. I do want to ask you about some of the athletes today before I let you go. Like, you know, Conor McGregor and maybe some, who, who are some of the guys you maybe have paid attention to that in recent times? 
Oh boy. <laughs> All of them. Uh, one of them. Well, what do you think about the outlandish? How so many of them are so outlandish? Because in your time, most of the guys were very respectful of each other. Because, like I said, they were all doing something that was pretty scary, unknown. Now it's like they're all trying to be more outlandish than each other. So I was curious of what you thought of that. Well, the the purist in me, the martial artist in me, doesn't like it. I don't like the 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 the, the, the manufactured trash talk. I don't like the disrespect. I don't like the circus atmosphere. Um, I don't like fighters throwing hand trucks at buses. Um, I don't like blatant disrespect. I don't like people talking about other people's families, other people's religions. Um, that kind of thing bothers me. I, on the other hand, I realize that the UFC is not going to or any any fight organization is not going to survive just on the purists, just on the hardcore fans who love what's going on inside the cage. I love to watch the technical aspect. Some people might consider a fight boring. I'm loving it because I'm watching this guy make somebody else miss and not being able to make them not be able to implement their game plan. I don't need to see two guys just stand in front of each other and just punch until one guy falls over. I enjoy the art. I enjoy the science of it. But there, guys like me aren't going to spend enough money to, to, to help grow it. So I know there has to be an element of the entertainment. There has to be maybe a little bit of the trash talk. But I think, I think you can trash talk without crossing lines. It's kind of like the same thing that I was talking about, about what happened to me. You can, you, you can, you can, be critical of me and not cross the line and get personal. I think it's the same thing with trash talk. You can, you can, you can say, if you're smart about it and say funny things or, you know, you know, something that, 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 that isn't bringing, you know, bringing it to a personal level or degrading level, you know, be creative. You know, I, I don't like that. I don't, I don't, I don't like the, and then, People, you know, they, they have this manufactured hatred for each other. And then when the fight's over, they love each other. Come on. Right. You know, that's, that, 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 that's not life. You know, so, so you know that in a lot of cases, it's, just, it's, it's manufactured to sell pay-per-views and to sell, you know, sell tickets. And, and, and I understand that, to, like I said, to a degree, you have to have that. But I, I, there are lines I don't think you should cross. Now, as we're kind of wrapping up this interview, I always like to ask people, like, for people that are listening to this, what would you, is there anything you'd like to leave them with or maybe if they wanted to follow you or they were interested in you, something like that? Well, I'm in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, I train, personally, I train every day, but I've got uh, just, like I said, just a real tiny handful of, of students that I train three times a week. Um, I would encourage anybody who has a love for the martial arts to train, find a good school. It doesn't matter to in my opinion, it doesn't matter what martial art you choose, um, but it's something that can help everybody. A real good friend of mine said, it's not for everybody, but it can be for anybody. And think about it, it's true. You know, everybody's not going to like it, but anybody can gain from it. And uh, if you want to compete, fine, find, a, find a, a gym that will 
help you compete. If you want to just train for the knowledge and the experience and the, and, and the love of martial arts, uh, find a dojo, find a gym. There's so much out there now that never used to be out there. Uh, the, the opportunities are, are limitless, but don't settle for the first thing you come across. You know, shop around. It's just like you don't walk onto the car a lot and just buy a car just without trying it out and, and asking about it or drive it around the block. You know, see see what the, what the school is like. See what you think about the people that are there, about the instructors, about the cleanliness of the place. What what's the atmosphere like? But um, it's something that can make your life better. It's something. Uh, I'm 65 years old. I I train every day. You don't have to be you know, a 25 year old super athlete to, 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 to make gains. A lot of people I've trained, a vast majority of the people I've trained over the years haven't been fighters, but people who like to get in really good shape. And trust me, I work them hard and they get in good shape. Um, some people like to, to just be around other people doing the same thing. That's a healthy activity and, and, and you're gaining knowledge at the same time. But, uh, if it's if, if you're curious about it, try it out. If you catch the bug, stick with it. Uh, don't 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 give up. And that's that's with everything in life. I tell people this all the time. Martial arts is life. Martial arts will teach you anything and everything that you need in life to get through anything. It'll make your interpersonal relationships better, relationships with your family, with your with your coworkers, with your bosses, with how to handle difficult people. Think about it. If I'm in a fight and this guy is really strong, I have to learn out how, and he's stronger than me. I can't do a test of strength. I can't just butt up heads against him because he's gonna win. But if I create an angle and get close, or if he doesn't like kicks and I kick, then I figure out a way, a strategy to overcome it. It's the same thing in life. You have a problem, you might have to figure out all kinds of creative ways to solve it under pressure. Martial arts will teach you that. Uh, martial arts will give you everything. It, it can add goodness and positivity and, and, and skills to everything in your life. It's not just about going to the gym or just about going to the dojo or just about going into a, into a competition arena, be it a cage or a ring. Um, a true martial artist doesn't just go in there and fight and then do nothing until he's got another fight scheduled and then he signs on the line and he goes back to the gym. That's a fighter, but it's not a martial artist. Every martial artist by definition has to be a fighter, but not every fighter is necessarily a martial artist. And martial art, a, a, a fighter is limited. When he gets to a certain age or she gets to a certain age, they have to stop because they can't compete anymore. But a martial artist never has to stop because that learning never ends and the growing and the improving never ends. So, you know, if, if people want to find something that will enrich their lives, I, I highly suggest they find a good martial arts school and, and a good instructor. Yeah, and you look better than I'd probably say 90% of 65 year olds, I would guess. Well, I, like I said, I work, I, I do something every day. I, I, and when I retire, I'm just going to do more. So that's, it's just one of those things. It's in my blood and um, I appreciate the compliment, but it's, it's just, a, it's just a byproduct of, uh, of what I do every day in my life. 
Well, Fred, again, I just, I really appreciate you taking time out to do this and, uh, you know, hopefully I can catch up with you again sometime on another show or something. I look forward to it. Anytime you just let me know. I appreciate it. And take yeah. care. Thank you. You too. All right. So if you're ever interested in talking with Fred Edish, he's on Facebook a lot. So if you just look him up, Fred Edish on Facebook, he's easy to find there. And as always, if you want to uh, follow me, you can follow me at Instagram at the underscore Todd underscore Atkins underscore show. And also, uh, please follow my YouTube and TikTok, which is Todd Atkins show. I need more subscribers on YouTube. And if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe to it, share it with some people, you know, uh, like I said, I don't charge for any of this stuff. Just to subscribe to it, maybe tell somebody else about it. That's all. That's all I would want. And uh, I got a bunch of episodes that I have, uh, like in the queue here. I'm gonna be dropping. So check it out. <laughs>